so good to see you. Go ahead and grab a seat. And uh, a couple quick things. The pantry pounding that Kristen was talking about is so fun. And when, when Amber and I moved here uh, over two years ago now, you guys pounded our pantry. And it was incredible. I think we're still using things that we got from two years ago. You guys were so generous. It was really just this overwhelming a blessing to us, and we did the same thing for Pastor Lee and his family, and I think they're probably still using stuff, and so it's just a great tradition to continue now uh, with Kyle as he comes in just a few weeks, and Ruthie and their whole family. And also, I wanted to mention, forgot to mention this first service, but you've heard about it before, we're running the Alpha course here at First Baptist starting uh, the Tuesday after Easter. So it's uh, the 23rd is the date, I believe. And Alpha, if you're not familiar with it, is just an opportunity to come and bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring objections. It's really intended to be a place for people who are not already Christians, but who might want to learn more about Christianity. And so it's a great chance to talk about what we believe as Christians and to learn from one another. But it's a really uh, safe environment to just say, hey, uh, you don't have to believe this, but we just want to talk about faith and life and things that matter. And so uh, if you want to come to that, we'd love to have you there. If that sounds interesting to you, um, there's going to be a sign-up sheet coming in the weeks ahead more formally, but just wanted to uh, plant that seed now. Or if you have a, a neighbor, a friend, a family member who uh, isn't really into faith things, but might be interested to, to talk about Jesus, to, to, to hear more, to have a place to to uh, walk through some of those conversations. I'm going to be leading that and a few other people in the church, so I hope that you'll consider coming and being a part of it. Uh, so now, go ahead and open your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, if you have your own Bible, great. If you want to scroll there on your phone, that's great too. If you don't have a Bible and want one, on the seats in front of you, we have ones that look like this. So make sure to open it up and follow along. Uh, we're not going to have the words on the screen. It's not because we hate technology. We just want to be in the practice and the habit of opening up the Bible for ourselves. And so it's a chance for us all to just sit with an open Bible, read the words ourselves, and study it together. So again, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. If you're using one of these Bibles, it's page 829. Sound good? All right. I'm going to read our first few verses here for us. 1 Peter 2, verse 11, says this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We are so grateful that you have made yourself known to us and to the world through your word. So God, we ask now for your help to understand what we just read and to apply it to our lives. Lord, help us uh, to see you, to be changed by uh, an encounter with you in your word. God, would you teach us, open our eyes and our hearts to see. We love you so much and we give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, for several weeks now, we've been in this series we're calling Life in Exile, and we're using the language of, 
of exile, which is of someone who is not at home, right? If you're in exile, it means that you're, you're living away from your true home. Your true home is elsewhere. In, in the letter of First Peter, the author Peter in the first century there is writing to this group of Christians in Asia Minor, and he refers to them as exiles, letting them know that, hey, you are not at home. And that's not an issue of geography for them at this point, but an issue of their commitment to Jesus and to following Jesus has made them uh, out of sync with the world around them. And that can be an uncomfortable place to be. It can be a, a challenging place to be. And because of this, there are often two responses to life in exile. When we find ourselves in exile, there's two kind of opposite extremes that we might be tempted to move towards. And one of them is to take a combative posture towards the world around us, right? Whereas Christians, we uh, get kind of harsh towards outsiders. Maybe we want to distance ourselves from people who, who aren't Christians and just kind of retreat into the walls of the church. And we're a little bit aggressive with those that wouldn't call themselves Christians, not very gracious towards those in the outside world. We can be condescending online and on Facebook. We can be feisty. Okay, it's kind of a combative posture. Uh, the other extreme is to take the posture of compromise, where we say, you know what? It's just too difficult to be a Christian. It's just too difficult to be different, to be viewed this way, to be called these things, to be criticized. And so I'm going to compromise my faith so I can blend in. So it's a little bit easier for me not to be ridiculed in this way. And I'm just going to kind of embrace the values and the worldview of the world around me. That's the posture of compromise. And sometimes, as followers of Jesus, we feel like maybe those are the only two options. We either get combative or we compromise. But I would suggest, and I think the scriptures show us that there is a third way. There's a third way to engage, and that's exactly what 1 Peter chapter 2 is going to be talking about. See, in verse 11, this new section of the book begins where Peter is going to be instructing his audience on, hey, here's how I want you to live before a watching world. Here's how I want you to live out there in public, in the public square, where people are going to see your lives. See, he's talked about for some time now the, the joy of being a Christian, this hope that we have, that we've been born again. We have this new life. This living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're the people of God. We belong to him. Have this new life with him and this purpose in the world. And now he's going to say to these first century Christians and to us, and here's how, looking outward, I want you to conduct yourselves in the world. And you see how he starts in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, there's that word exile again, reminding them and us that as Christians we're, we're out of place in this world. And part of the difficulty that comes with that is highlighted in the next verse, in verse 12. It says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And so you see the sobering reality in the middle of that verse, though they accuse you of doing wrong. There's one of the difficulties of life in exile right there. People are not going to understand you. 
people are going to possibly slander you and make false accusations against you and against your character. And so they're saying, hey, as Christians, people aren't just going to look at you with like a neutral lens, as in, hey, Christianity, it's weird, it's irrelevant, so what's, what's the big deal? No, people are actually going to see it as negative, right? as, as a bad thing, as an evil thing to embrace. Not just neutral, but not just irrelevant, but actively harmful and bad for society to embrace the ways of Jesus. We can see this today in a number of ways. This was the case in the first century, though, where, where Christians were accused of all sorts of things, they were accused of being foolish and superstitious. They were accused of being cannibals. Seriously, because of the way they talked about uh, communion and uh, eating the, the body and the blood of Jesus. People were like, what in the world are they talking about? They're cannibals. Seriously. Or people would accuse them of uh, committing incest because of the way they talked about being a family and brother and sister and that type of language was used. And they talked about loving one another deeply. People were like, what in the world is going on behind closed doors? There's some, some shady family business going on. Seriously. Or people would accuse Christians of being disruptors of the social order because they wouldn't honor the emperor. They wouldn't worship uh, the, the tribal gods nearby. They disturbed the peace. People weren't comfortable. They, they saw Christians as dangerous to the very fabric of society. And so in the ancient world, as, as it is today, I guess it's easier to just slander minority groups than it is to seek to understand them. And so that's what people in the Roman world would do. They'd accuse Christians of all sorts of things. It's not too different from today where people will say all kinds of things against Christians, either individually against you or just as Christians uh, as a whole, right? Christians are, are narrow-minded or foolish or... Uh, hateful, intolerant, right? Bad for society to embrace these biblical convictions. It's against progress or uh, on the wrong side of history or any kind of other phrase we could throw about it. And so sometimes when that happens, Christians say, well, well, man, all right, two, two options. Either combative posture, I'm gonna get harsh and bitter and it's, it's difficult to be called these things and so I'm gonna get kind of frustrated and angry with people or compromise. It's just too difficult to be different. And so I'm going to change some of my views on these things in order to make life a bit more comfortable. But you notice that's not the posture that Peter tells us to take. Neither extreme. Instead, what does he say? Verse 12. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So here's what he says to do. Hey, I want you to live such good lives among these people. Let your way of life, your conduct, your behavior speak louder than the accusations that people bring against you. So he doesn't say, hey, when they accuse you, accuse them right back. When they're harsh with you, be harsh with them right back. When they're mean to you, be mean to them right back. Have this bitterness of your own. He doesn't say, hey, compromise your views so you just things go a little smoother for you. Don't talk about controversial biblical opinions. Just don't go there. No, he says, put your head down. Prove them wrong by your life. Work at living in such a way that you show to them and to anyone else that there's no basis for these accusations that they are bringing against you. 
He's saying, do good. Do good in the world for the glory of God. Reminds us of this Old Testament passage from a time in the people of God's history when they were in exile from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. We're not going to have it on the screen, but you can write it down or I just want to read it for us. This is centuries earlier. The prophet Jeremiah is speaking to the people of God in exile. And listen to what God says. It says in verse 4, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Again, they're living in Babylon. Okay? It's a nation that doesn't fear the Lord, nothing to do with God. Okay? They're living in Babylon. Here's what he says. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So you think you're in exile. People of God, you're living in exile. You're living in Babylon. Here's how I want you to live. Not compromise, not combat. No, live a a compelling life. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. Pray on behalf of the city. Seek the peace, the welfare, the prosperity of Benicia. Pray on behalf of this city to God. His blessings would be evident in Benicia, in Vallejo, in, a, in the whole Bay Area. Do good in your community. Contribute to your city. Love your neighbors. Live in such a way that if people accuse you of doing wrong, it will show in time that you are nothing but a blessing to your community. That's the call. This text reminds me of my mom. Uh, She serves in some incredible ways at her church in Sacramento. And recently she's been a part of this ministry called World Relief. It's a Christian organization that helps pair churches with uh, refugees that are living in the states now. So people have come from all over the world fleeing persecution or uh, war, whatever it might be. And they're now settled in the states and Again, I've never lived here before and often don't know the language and the customs and how to get around and figure things out. And so this ministry pairs refugee families with uh, groups of Christians who can say, hey, we don't know you, but uh, let us love you and support you. And how can we help get you around and transport and help you find work and help you go to the store and just help you learn the language? Like whatever you need, we're going to be here to help you. It's an incredible ministry. And I don't know if... Anyone right now is actively slandering my mom or accusing her of evil. I'll call her after this and find out. I don't think so. But if they were, I think people could point to this type of love where there's nothing in this for her. Right? She, she's sacrificially loving this family that, that needs it. So I think you could point to that and say, like, wait a second. These things you're saying about her aren't true because look at, look at her conduct. Look at the way she's living. Look at what she's doing for other people. The same should be true of us, that we can live in such a way that people see it. And you know, we're going to say more on that in just a second, but you notice back in the text of First Peter that Peter points out there are kind of two sides to the equation of doing 
good. Right? There's the doing good actively, and then verse 11 points out abstaining from sinful things, not doing these damaging, destructive things. You notice verse 11. Again, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, that's how we started, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So part of this doing good means abstaining from sin. It's a reality that even in our new life as Christians, there are going to be desires, impulses that spring up within our hearts that are not to be indulged or pursued. Because you notice what the text says. It says these sinful desires wage war against your soul. And so the idea is not that, hey, sin is pretty neutral or it's like just some arbitrary rules that God set up and he just wants to kind of keep things in line. And so it's really not that big of a deal if you cross these lines. No, it's saying that these sinful desires bring about destruction in our lives. They're waging war against us. So there are impulses, desires that we all have in our hearts that are not for our good. We might not realize it at the time, but if we follow them, they'll lead to destruction. They'll, they'll lead to death. Proverbs 14, 12 says it this way, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that appears to be right. It looks good. It looks desirable. We want to pursue it. We want to go down that road. But in the end, it leads to death. Have you ever done something that you thought would be good for you? And it ended up in destruction? It ended up not being good for you? I think I mentioned McDonald's before. This is sometimes the way I feel after I eat McDonald's. I thought it would be a good idea. When I was eating it, I, it looked desirable. I enjoyed it, but not long afterwards, I realized it was a poor decision. Anybody? Okay. Maybe on a more, more serious note, you felt these impulses. Maybe you've been in an argument with someone, and you, you want so badly just to, to say something to wound them. You want to win the argument. You want to, in your anger, bring up something that's going to hurt them or going to put them in their place or make them see how right you are and how wrong they are. And just, you think it's going to feel so good to say it. You just got to get it out in that argument. And then you do. And you wish you hadn't. Because those words bring damage to the person you're talking to, damage the relationship. There was an impulse within you that said, I... I'm going to feel better if I follow this. And the opposite is actually what happened. So there are these desires within us that are actually waging war against us, that if we follow them, will lead us away from God, away from our good, away from a deeper commitment to him, and away from joy in life. And Peter doesn't give us a, a list here. He doesn't list what specifically he's talking about. But we can look elsewhere in Scripture and see what sorts of things he might have in mind. We think about pride or selfishness. Think about lust and sexual immorality. Think about greed and, and drunkenness. 
idolatry and jealousy and violence. We can go on and on. There are things that we desire that do not lead to our good. Think about a dear friend of mine that was a mentor of mine in seminary. He was a pastor at the church I was at. Um, and it came out in my time there that he had been having an affair. And uh, it came to light. It was devastating to our church. It was devastating. Uh, Amber and I were just shook by it. We had no, no clue it was coming. He'd been at the church for about 15 years. And so his ministry had touched so many people. So many families. And they all now were, were questioning his work in their lives. And, and, and could they really believe in Jesus? And, and especially these non-Christian people were saying, man, here's this representative of God, this Christian pastor. And, and look at this double life he's been leading. And so not only does our sin damage ourselves and our families, but it does damage to our witness in the world and our witness for Christ about what living a godly life looks like. And so for him, and, and we're still good friends to this day, and I, I love this man dearly, but he would even say that he, he had these desires within him that he followed, that he thought would bring fulfillment, some kind of pleasure, some kind of, of joy into his life. He pursued them, but in the end it brought destruction devastation to him, his family, his kids, our church. Of course, God is gracious. Of course, there can be redemption. But we have to be so careful to realize that not every impulse within us is for our good. And there are things that by the grace of God, we are to say no to so that we can live godly, honorable lives in private and in public. So he says, abstain from these sinful things. But the second part that Peter points out is more positive, right? Not just avoid the sinful bad things, but pursue that which is good, right? Verse 12, live such good lives, honorable lives among these people, that, among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. And so we have to ask, is our profession of faith with our words accompanied with actions of faith that demonstrate what we believe? Is our faith adorned with good deeds that demonstrate God's love and grace in the world? And so with Peter, there's this assumption that people are watching. Isn't that what we do as people, especially when there are strangers nearby, someone you don't recognize, someone that looks a little different from the crowd that you're in? There's this natural impulse to kind of pay attention to them, kind of watch a little more closely. This is what people do. And so Peter's saying, hey, as Christians in the world, you're going to look different. You're going to probably sound different than the people around you, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, wherever it might be. So people are going to pay attention to how you live in public, what you do or don't do, what you say or do not say. People are paying attention. And so if someone were to accuse you of being a danger to society or being hateful and ignorant or a intolerant Jesus freak? Would someone be able to say, whoa, 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 wait a second. I know Joe or Susie. I've seen them live out X, Y, or Z. And so these things that you're saying against them don't, don't really add up. 
these accusations don't make sense in light of what we've seen in their life. Could someone say, hey, you know, Francine over at FBC talks about, G- I don't know if there's a Francine in the room right now, but <laughs> the hypothetical Francine. Francine over at FBC, she believes some weird things about Jesus, and I think it's a little dangerous the way she talks about him and tries to share him with other people, but, but you know, she showed up when my kids got sick. She showed up to watch my kids when I was in a jam. She brought me a meal when we came home from the hospital. Would people be able to say, you know, Francine, she, she believes some goofy stuff about the Bible. I think it's backwards. I don't think it's true. Man, I heard about her generosity, the way she, she sponsors kids through Compassion International in Togo. She gives money every month that these kids could come out of poverty and have education and clothing and people caring for them. So I, I don't believe the things that she believes, but man, look at her, her sacrifice. Look at her willingness to care for those in need. Could people say, you know what? Those people over at FBC believe some weird things. They believe in heaven and hell. They believe in judgment. They believe in a holy God that we'll all have to stand before one day and give an account for our lives. I don't like that. I think that's rather strange. I think that would damage people if they embrace that view. But, man, they love our kids. They have this kids' choir they do every Sunday. They have this red awning cafe they put on during the week where they're feeding middle school students, giving them a warm place in the church building before school where they could be safe and fed. I don't believe what they believe. I think they're kind of weird, honestly, but look at how they're loving my family and our community. And frankly, if if they were to pack up shop and sell the building and move away, I, I would miss them. Their presence in the community means something to me and to my family. And so we have to ask, are, are we living in such a way that if accusations were brought against us, people could say, you know, I, I don't like them or I don't even believe what they believe, but, 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 but look. Look at how they live. Look at how they love us and our our family. We'd miss them if they weren't around. And if we don't have anything like that in our lives, then the encouragement is for us to, to pray about that, to consider, Lord, is my life communicating who you are to the world around us? Because when we do this, when we live like that, it, it brings people to consider who this Jesus is, right? People might not be convinced of the truth of the gospel by a well-worded argument on Facebook. I have learned that the hard way. And I just thought, man, if I could just word this just right and answer their objections just right and show how silly they're being for not believing X, Y, or Z, then they believe. That's not how it works. Often, It doesn't always work that way, but when a Christian is able to love that person radically, it makes a bigger impact than we realize. And so not all of us in this room were originally compelled to be Christians because of uh, well-articulated arguments for the legitimacy of the Christian faith. 
And I'm not saying that arguments like that are bad or that we, we shouldn't give good reasons for what we believe or engage in the discipline of apologetics, defending the faith, showing, hey, here's why we believe what we believe. Those are good things and conversations that should happen. But I think what Peter is showing us is that an even more powerful tool in spreading the gospel is a compelling life of love in Jesus' name. And so this is the third way. Not combat, not compromise, a compelling life of love in Jesus' name. And notice, this is not done so that we get praise. Right, what does verse 12 say? It says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds, okay, we've talked about that, and glorify God on the day he visits us. Not glorify you, or me, the point is not that we would receive praise for this or that we would brag about ourselves to our community. You know, we're called to live in humility, not self-promotion. So the idea is we're not supposed to brag about ourselves, but people will see our lives. Naturally, people will take notice. And when they do, this will result in praise to God. Matthew 5, 16 says it this way, the words of Jesus. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so we have to ask, how is it that our good deeds translate to God being glorified? Like, how, how does the math work there? A couple potential ways. One is that people could come to faith because, in part, of our witness. People could say, hey, there's something about those Christians. I want to know more. They come. They hear the gospel. They themselves become followers of Jesus, and they then are praising God and glorifying him. That happens. But maybe, maybe not. Maybe people don't become believers themselves, but Pastor John Piper, an author, has put it this way. He said, God is most glorified in us when... We are most satisfied in him. Let me say that again. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So if we are satisfied in God and see Jesus as our treasure and are willing to sacrifice for him, it shows how good and Beautiful and worthy he is. Okay, think about, have you ever been driving by a Best Buy or Target or something and you've seen people lined up outside, like overnight they got the tents out because they want to sleep there so they can be first in line in the morning and buy a new TV or a new Xbox or whatever it is. Have you seen those people? Have you been those people? Anyone? No one, no one admitted to it in first service, but I'm sure somebody here has done it, okay? But, but the idea is they're willing to, to sacrifice a good night of sleep and warmth and comfort to be out in the cold on the concrete and, and buy some new product. When you see that, first you think, well, okay, they're kind of crazy. Okay, I wouldn't do that. But, wow, whatever it is they're buying, whatever it is they're getting, they must be pretty valuable. 
At least to them, it must be pretty significant. It must bring a good amount of joy into their life that they're willing to sleep outside overnight at this big sale to be first in line. Right? That, they're willing to sacrifice, and so it shows that whatever it is they're getting is valuable, is worth that. And so when we show people, hey, we are satisfied in Christ, our joy in life does not come, it doesn't come through money. And so I'm willing to, to sacrifice my money and, and live a generous life because my joy is in, in Jesus. That says something to the world. When we are able to live a life and maybe take risks and get uncomfortable so that we can love people, it communicates that my, my joy and my satisfaction in life does not come from my comfort and my safety. It comes from Christ. And so I'm willing to sacrifice and do hard things and love difficult people because of Jesus. It shows that, that Jesus is worthy. He's glorious. He's beautiful. He's good. He satisfies our hearts. When we can live like that, it shows that God is glorious. And so all of this points back to the gospel. You see, it has to start with the gospel. It has to start with, with Jesus. Because this message of the gospel changes us. Right? The message of the gospel is, is God so loved the world that he gave his son, that Jesus came, died on a cross for you and for me, for our sins, that through faith in him, we could be forgiven, reconciled, to God who loves us, restored to a right relationship with him, given new hearts, a new start, new life with God both now and forevermore. And so when we, when we see that, and we understand that, that we have been so loved, so I can, I can love other people in my world, we have been forgiven, so yeah, so we can extend forgiveness to those that have hurt us. I have received grace from God in Jesus Christ, so I can extend grace to people around me. It all starts with an understanding of the gospel. And see, we've been talking a lot this morning about doing good in the world, doing good that people might see, doing good, blessing our community. I, I want to make sure that we don't misunderstand. This is not just another get your act together sermon, you know, go do good things. That's what religion is about. Act right, do good stuff, love people. Especially if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. That's not step one. Step one isn't go do good things so that God will be happy with you. Step one is come to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Step one is receive the grace of God offered to you in Jesus. God loves you wants to forgive you, bring you back into his family, to know you and walk with you forever. And so we start there. And then step two is now, now go and, and live a life that glorifies God. But, but doing good is not something we do to earn God's love. Doing good is something we do because we have received God's love. And so the order there is incredibly important. Step one. Love Jesus. Step two, from the grace and the love that we have received, now go and live this new life, empowered by the Holy Spirit, God's presence now in you, enabling you to be obedient. And so, 
Doing good matters. Obedience matters. It's not wrong to say, hey, go do good things, but we have to get the order right. So, verses 11 and 12 we've seen kind of set the tone for the next two, uh, couple chapters. Doing good for the glory of God. It's the main theme. And Peter's going to get a little bit more specific in the verses ahead about what does that look like out in the public square. And we see kind of the first example in verse 13 as we continue. It says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And so maybe those verses sound confusing because you're saying, wait a second, we've been talking about doing good, loving your neighbor, living a compelling life of love in Jesus' name for for people, and now you're talking about respecting the government? Like that seems like those don't fit or don't necessarily follow. But the text is saying, honor the emperor, governors, those in power. And it's not saying that we are to do that because these leaders are necessarily praiseworthy or great in and of themselves, the text says what? That we are to do this for the Lord's sake. And so out of a love for God and reverence for Christ, we honor and submit to human authorities. God's still our ultimate authority, but we respect the leaders that have been placed over us. This is a particularly fun topic in America, in the West, because we are by nature, right, like rebels. We, we overthrew our government over in England, and we came here and started our own thing. And so isn't that just what it means to be American, is to question authority and to push off government and to embrace a total freedom in every way? Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But, but first, this was an issue in the first century Uh, particularly for for Christians, because again, they were labeled as those who would disrupt the social order, who were kind of disturbers of the peace, because they wouldn't uh, see Caesar, the emperor, as as Lord. They said, our our highest authority is not uh, Nero or or Caesar, it's it's Jesus. Jesus is king and Lord of everything. And so people say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, well, what does that mean then? Are you still going to obey the laws? Are you still going to pay your taxes? How are you going to function in society? And so, and so Peter's trying to instruct the believers, hey, hey, hold on. Uh, remember, I want you to live good lives so that people watching will see the good that you do, and that will lead to honor and glory for God, that the people would have no grounds to accuse you. And so part of that is, hey, be good citizens. Be good citizens. Honor those in charge. Submit to them. Obey the laws of the land. That's part of it. Now, this isn't a perfect one-to-one correlation because the Roman Empire and a Western democracy like ours run uh, very different. But the general principle is there: honor and submit to the authority of the government. Willingly choose to obey. Because in general, verse 14, Government functions, it says, to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. So in general, government upholds this social order, decency in society. Of course, that's not always the case, but in general, that's what government leaders are supposed to do. And so give them the respect due to their 
office. Now, the natural question comes up then, well, what about when government isn't doing what it's supposed to do, when they're corrupt, when leaders are corrupt, when we don't like their policies, when their policies go against the will of God? That's a really good question. And this text isn't saying that we should have this unwavering commitment to whoever is in charge. No matter the circumstances, we obey human authorities and whatever they tell us to do, or we can't call out the sin of, of leaders. It's not saying that. Remember, actually, even in the New Testament, John the Baptist called out the sin of Herod, got him killed, but he did it. Okay, so it's not saying, like, hey, never say anything against a leader. That's not what it's saying. And we actually see examples in the Bible of faithful men and women who do not obey certain laws where they live because they go directly against the will of God. We think of Daniel and his friends in the Old Testament. We think of, of Pharaoh. And so I, I don't think that this text rules out uh, protest or, or pointing out concerns about those who are in power. It's not just like unquestioning, unwavering acceptance as, of whatever the government does. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying that hey, in general, we should have this posture of, of obedience, of obeying laws, being good citizens, while still challenging leaders. I think in our context, that's actually seen as a part of being a good citizen, isn't it? Like the, in America, if we engage in the political process, if we let our voice be known, we talk to our senators, we send in letters, we go to protests, different things, our, our voice is heard, and that's seen in general as a, a good thing, what, how a democracy functions. It's not seen as, oh, you're being a bad citizen if you do those things. It's actually seen as a good thing. And so it's not saying, hey, don't participate in the political process, but it does talk about having, in general, this posture of honor and respect and obedience for those who are in charge. And the reasoning given in verse 15, for it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So like earlier, the idea is that do good, you are to do good, and your life will speak louder than the accusations and slander brought against you. And so demonstrate that you are a good citizen, that you support your city, that you want to contribute to the well-being of society where God has placed you. And let's just be honest, again, that's, that's hard for us today in the West. That's hard for us as Christians who don't always like our leaders in government. We don't always like the, the president, either the current president, Trump, or former president, Obama, or whoever else it might be. We don't always like them, or the things that they do, or the things that they say, or the laws that they pass. No matter where you are on the political spectrum, this can be an incredibly difficult thing to, to navigate. But the idea here is that whoever it is, we should have, in general, a posture of honor, respect for them, not unnecessarily slandering them, praying for them, doing our best to, to speak well for them, well of them. So anyway, how, how would we respond if they, the president, came to your door? Just knocked. Hey. Oh, whoa. Uh, how, how would you treat them? Again, again, whether the current president, you don't like him, or if it was the previous president and you don't like him, or you don't like either of them, then still, and they showed up, how, how would you treat them? There sh should be, a, in general, a, a posture of, of respect, of honor for their office. Again, I know that this isn't the easiest talk, topic to talk about. You want to talk more, we'd love to talk with you after the service, really. I mean, really, this is something that we have to work out as 
as believers. But verse 16 really gets at the heart of the issue. Uh, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slave. So the idea is, you're free in Christ. The president, he's not your ultimate authority. The government, they're not your ultimate authority. Jesus is. That's not going to change. Okay, Jesus is your authority. But, but, don't misunderstand. That, that doesn't mean that, hey, just go and do whatever you want and don't obey the laws and don't pay your taxes and that, that, that because they're not your authority. No, no you, Jesus is your ultimate authority. You are free in Christ. And now, your ultimate authority, Jesus, is asking you, telling you to submit to your earthly authorities out of reverence for him. So live as free people. You are free in Christ. But show people that you're still a good citizen. And that submission, in that light, does not mean that we are, are cowering in fear before the president or before political leaders. Because we're free in Christ. Jesus is our ultimate authority. There's no fear. There's the, the willing choice that we make to obey. And verse 17 closes out the section with a string of commands. Show proper respect to everyone. Right? Everyone's made in the image of God. Love the family of believers. There's a special affection for the church that you are to have. Fear God, as we've talked about, as your ultimate authority, and honor the emperor, as we just discussed. And so overall, our posture is one of serving others, doing good in our community, honoring all people, not combat, not compromise, but a compelling life of love in Jesus' name. And so, friends, it's time to transition to a time of communion together where we again remember the gospel. And we remember that it's because of Jesus, his love and his grace, that we have this new life in him. We've been forgiven of our sins. So we remember as we take the bread representing Jesus' broken body for us and the cup representing his shed blood for us that we have new life. We've been welcomed home as children of God. And it's from that place of fullness and joy in Christ that we can then go out and do good the way that First Peter's telling us. And so we're going to celebrate as a church family by coming to the table. There's two stations up front. It's gluten-free on both sides, so don't worry about that. Uh, we invite, if, it's an open table here, so it means if, if you're here and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, even if you're just visiting, come participate with us. Um, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and not really sure where you're at with this whole Jesus thing, then we encourage you just to remain seated and think about the things we've talked about so far. Let me pray for us, and then we'll partake. Jesus, we love you, and we declare that you are our King. You are our Lord and Savior. And so we come to the table to honor you, to proclaim your death and all that it means for us. It fills us with joy to remember who you are and what you've done for us. We pray, Lord, that uh, this time now, celebrating you through the elements, would, would encourage us, would, would nourish our souls, and would allow us to be more faithful to you as we leave today. In your name we pray. Amen.